all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 345 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cayman Islands episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the country code for the Cayman Islands, better known to us as an area code, is 345. And with that wonderful little bit of Cayman Islands knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Have you ever been to the Cayman Islands? No. No, but now I know how to spell it, so that's good. It's with a K, right? <laughs> or with a C-A-Y. Oh, damn, you're right. C-A-Y-M-A-N. Yes, sir. Wow. Okay, I was about to say, maybe I'm thinking of Cayenne, but even that's spelt with the C. Oh, that would have been great if I said that. I'm, I had way too many mashed potatoes for dinner, and I'm going to blame it on my starch-filled stomach. That is, I believe, a fair way to look at it. So, how the hell are you, sir? Full of potatoes. Have you Sounds ever like, like eaten too much mashed potatoes? I have. Um, almost every time I get mashed potatoes, I eat too much. Because when I do get mashed potatoes, I get the really good mashed potatoes, like my wife or my mom or my mother-in-law, some awesome member of my family will make like the most amazing mashed potatoes. And we're talking just with perfect amount of spices and salt and pepper and stuff with like full on uh, whipping cream in there and i mean just super rich buttery amazing mashed potatoes and so since that only happens like five times a year yeah so I at least you don't do the cream cheese i know people do cream cheese uh, you know, th- that's one of their ingredients for mashed potatoes. And the last time I made mashed potatoes, the the recipe that I was following called for cream cheese, and it was way too rich. My uh, more so significant other, uh, I guess my wife, she... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds more professional saying my more so significant other. Other, I mean, but maybe that is more degrading, I, I, I suppose. I just I just like the fully upgraded significant other. I, I just, I like the way that feels. But, I mean, it's also kind of different. I mean, I've been saying wife for 15 years. You've been saying wife for a month and a half. I mean, it, this it's, is true. It's, it's different getting used to that. Well, a good thing about having a wife or getting a wife or, you know, not like purchasing one or having one purchased for you, (laughs) but going through the process of marriage here in America, at least uh, a big perk other than love, I suppose, is uh, gifts, receiving uh, gifts from your registry. And one of the cool gifts that we got was a, you know, those like Instapots? Oh, Are yeah. Are you familiar with those? Uh, yeah. We, well, we didn't get an Instapot. We got, like, a, a better one. It's made by the same company that does, like, the Ninja blender stuff. It's like a Ninja Pot. And it also is, like, an air crisper or air fryer and does all this other uh, neat stuff as well. So we've been having fun. Uh, well, I guess I, I'll fess up and say that she's been having fun. Um 
making new and delicious things, but the thing that she made yesterday in that Ninja Pot, whatever it's called, was very good mashed potatoes, like with a little bit of garlic and the butter and uh, thankfully no cream cheese, and it was just absolutely perfect. So I I had, um, there was a lot left over, and I pretty much ate a, a, a gallon and a half of... Uh, leftover mashed potatoes for dinner. We got one last year about Christmas time, an instant pot, and we got like the top of the line, the really big one that has all the bells and whistles and stuff. And one of the things that uh, has been successfully cooked, you know, that the Japanese white sticky rice that you get, like that really good rice that you get when you sure. go and grab sushi or whatever. Yeah. No shit, bro. Like this instant pot. Now I, I I make no other claims versus this ninja pot you have, um, but this instant pot that we have. I mean, I swear to God, it's like you went to a damn sushi restaurant and got the the most perfect sticky rice ever. Um, and it's every time, every time. I used to never eat I uh, rice when it was made here at the house because it was just never good. Um, not anymore. Oh my God. So amazing. Perfect texture, perfect flakiness. Um, got a, that just got that awesome taste where it's just a little buttery, a little sweet. Um, and it, oh my God, it's so good. So good. Um, so yes, I, I'm, I mean, I'm down with the, uh, Instapot, Ninja Pot action myself. Welcome back to the delicious dish. <laughs> Matthias joins us with his Instapot. So does Timicus, and they will compare. They will uh, compare pots. They will compare instant ninja pots to see who can make the best Japanese sticky rice. Stay tuned. Good times. Good times. Yes. <laughs> well, now that we're all caught up and everybody knows about mashed potatoes and ninja instant pots and amazing sticky rice. What do you say we get into uh, our bonus segment for this week? Let's do it. All right, then. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. It's... 30 This time on three squared, which we have not actually done a three squared in about five months. Can you believe that? Remember when we used to do them like every week and now we do them like once or twice a year? Um, we've just filled out our show so amazingly with all these wonderful different bonus segments that we have. Uh, <clears throat> but this week, our three squared we're looking at government slash big brother esque government esque slash big brother esque movies uh basically the idea is to uh, to as much of a degree as possible being central to the plot the characters are being watched chased hunted viewed through some kind of lens and they may or may not know they're being watched or followed or chased, but generally they figure that part out pretty quick. And so I have chosen three films. Uh, Tim has chosen three films. 
And Tim, do you wanna do you wanna bounce back and forth just for fun, or do you just want to do like normal? Oh, well, let's I'll do three and you do three. Yeah, no, let, let's let's bounce back and forth. I like this idea. All right, we're gonna bounce back and forth. I'm gonna go ahead and start with, and mine will be in chronological order. Um, I, I I think I think Tim's will be as well, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Um, but yes, we're gonna start in 1983. With John Badham's War Games. Yeah, that's right. War Games starred Matthew Broderick, Dabney Coleman, John Wood, and Ali Sheedy. And basically what we have is the birth, mind you. Not just the conception. Nay, the birth of computer override. Basically think Skynet, but in real life. And that's what this movie is about. You've got, uh, basically the government has decided, NORAD has decided to automate missile launch detection. And this is this, this very interesting early idea about technology and accessing everything and having a, a true network and mainframes, much like a very, very early, early, early version of the internet is then inadvertently accessed by a high school kid, played by Matthew Broderick, who decides, oh, look, I found this fun thing where I can play global thermonuclear war. Global thermonuclear war. Hey, I this is cool. Let's play this game. Problem is, is the, the computer he connects to is the computer called the Whopper? <laughs> you get it, the the Whopper, um, <laughs> and uh, it stands for War Operation Plan Response. It's this huge mainframe computer. Like this, this mainframe computer would probably be for the average person, even if you're living in an apartment, would probably be the size of your living room area. That's how big this computer is. And this is what Matthew Broderick has connected to. And he says, let's play, you know, global thermonuclear war. And the computer's like, sounds like a plan, boss. Let's play. Except now Whopper's connected to NORAD and he's just triggered World War III. This is, of course, now the government is tracking him down to figure out, wait, what has happened here? Who is this person that accessed our system? How did they get in? Yada, yada, yada. And he's got to run for his life. This was one of the very earliest movies. I thoroughly enjoy this movie. This movie was a critical success uh, and box office success, a huge box office hit. Um, this is one of those movies, literally it was a four-star movie from Roger Ebert. It is just a great film. And it really does go to the heart, especially at the time of why people might be fearful of the government allowing computers to take over. And while to a very large degree we have solved most of these issues, some of the issues presented in this film still exist, or perhaps persist, despite our government saying, oh no, we're, everything's fine, trust us. That is why I love this movie, is because it 
it, it aside from nostalgia, aside from literally seeing for me for the very first time someone taking their old handset and then plugging it into this little suction cup device thing and had little suction cups on either end, which would then transmit and receive on like a little 12 baud modem <laughs> doing like <laughs> 1 kbps per mi- you know not per second but per second per minute <laughs> um it, it's amazing and the first time you hear a synthesized voice on a computer and you see everything that we have and we take for granted in it, in its true infancy but that can still lead to the same problems blows my mind it's such a it's just such a fantastic way to look at it it's also just a really damn fine thriller so i would highly recommend this movie it is definitely one of the reasons why it's on my list 1983's war games tim have have you ever seen this one i haven't seen war games in probably Shoot, 15 years or so. I've seen that it, it's been popping up like on Amazon Prime or even Netflix. I forgot which one. So I've been meaning to go back and uh, and revisit it. But have you watched it recently? Uh, you know what? No, I uh, you, you mentioned it. Hang on. I'm, I'm going to Netflix right now. I'm checking this out. Let's see. Who's watching? Why I'm watching. Um, okay. Strip tease. Basic Instinct Part 3. Even more basic... Instinct. Oh, but sadly, this movie did get a sequel called War Games: The Dead Code a couple of years ago. Don't watch that. That one, no, don't, 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 don't watch that. Did you watch Dead Code? No, I did look up a little bit of information on it when I saw that it was a, an actual sequel, and no, it's it's just I, yeah, I would not even just a little bit. I looked up on it. Definitely. You know, there are there are quite a few movies out there with offshoot sequels that their company or the director is trying to capitalize off the original film that made it so great. All right. So War Games. OK, so it's not on Netflix, but it is on Amazon. Uh, War Games is included with Prime. So if you have Prime, then you can get to watch that for free. But if you have War, uh, but War Games, the dead code, which is most hilarious that one you have to pay to rent, so don't do that. It's three ninety nine to rent. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the original is free. The terrible one you have to pay for. What what do you got for us there, Tim? Well, my first film is Terry Gilliam's nineteen eighty five film Brazil. Yes, Brazil, based on the Portuguese song Aquela do Brasil, in English that roughly translates to Watercolor of Brazil, written by Ari Barroso in 1939. I'm just kidding, folks. Really, the 1985 Terry Gilliam dystopian science fiction film Brazil is a film, according to Wikipedia, that centers on Sam Lowry, a man trying to find a woman who appears in his dreams while he is working in a mind-numbing job and living in a small apartment set in a consumer-driven dystopian world in which there is an over-reliance on poorly maintained and rather whimsical machines. Brazil's satire of bureaucratic bureaucratic total... Oh, God, it's one of those words. Bureaucratic total... 
I'm going to go with you're trying to say bureaucratic totalitarianism. Totalitarian. Yes. Totalitarianism? Totalitarian. See, it even take it took you twice to say that and I still can't. So, yes. Uh that I mean, okay, let's start that again. Bureaucratic totalitarian n- whatever. <laughs> bureaucratic totalitarianism. Government is reminiscent of George Orwell's 1984 and has been called Kafkaesque and absurdist. End quote from the uh, Wikipedia synopsis there. This film I treasure deeply because this is about, of course, this man, Sam Lowry, who is played by Jonathan Price, who lives in this dystopian, totalitarian world where there are cameras everywhere. You have to obey the law. You can't, you just have to basically live and work within the confines of your bubble. There's really no free thinking. And he just has these dreams of literally uh, sprouting wings and flying around and saving this princess-like woman and going off, flying to the lands of green, far away from the gray, smoke-filled city that they live in and of living this happily ever after, you know, fairy tale uh, life. And these are the dreams that he has, and throughout the movie he think they are real, and as the film progresses, he starts, well, the audience thinks that he's just losing his mind, but really he's becoming more aware of what is going on around him. And this is a film that I was first introduced to it kind of later on in uh, in life, I, I, I suppose. Like, this isn't a film that I grew up watching. I was more so aware of the studio edited cut, the Lou Wasserman cut, uh, that is best known as, um, when Terry Gilliam first released this film or wanted to release this film, the studio saw it and were like, no, we are not going to allow you to release this movie. People aren't going to understand it. It makes no sense. They just couldn't understand the heavy themes. And Terry Gilliam just took the film, his actual cut of the film, screened it at movie theaters and at all these colleges and that's how it became popular that's how it was able to pick up some steam and some momentum he invited uh columnists to come and review the his version of the film because when lou wasserman cut the film it had the love conquers all ending to the movie where it cuts out a huge plot point (laughs) at the end of the film it cuts out the heaviest point of the film which is the ending and wraps it up with a pretty little bow they put on lipstick and they just kiss that kiss that gift to give to the audience so the audience doesn't have to leave thinking so if you have a chance to watch terry gilliam's 1985 film brazil make sure you are actually watching terry gilliam's 1985 version uh, if you get the criterion version of the film which you can get on blu-ray now dvd that has actually both versions of the film and the love conquers all cut of the film is actually on i think the second disc as a bonus feature and it's definitely worth watching just to compare the two if you haven't seen this movie please watch it it's an absolute delight and i've know i've talked about this film at least Eight, nine, ten times uh, on this show because I just love it so much. Very cool. All right, moving into my second pick, which is 1998's Enemy of the State. 
which of course is a 1998 American action thriller film. This one, of course, directed by Tony Scott and stars Will Smith, Gene Hackman, John Voight, Regina King, Lauren Dean, Jack Black, Seth Green, Jake Busey, Scott Kahn, Barry Pepper, Jamie Kennedy, and Gabriel Byrne. Now, what makes this movie so fantastic is that this one takes the takes the offensive on just exactly how <clears throat> what we believe to be completely improbable but now we know to be absolutely possible invasive the government can be when they want to and poor uh Will Smith he's a lawyer played by Robert Clayton Dean he ends up completely entangled in this government uh in this government conspiracy because his buddy uh, an old friend of his whom he hasn't seen in a very very long time played by Jason Lee inadvertently drops a uh, like a data drive or something in his uh, bag now you know, and then of course, cue all the shenanigans, et cetera, et cetera. He he ends up finding um, his Yoda, if you will, his Obi Wan, in the character of Edward Brill Lyle, played by Gene Hackman, who is someone who's always helped him with uh, random information over time, and they now must go together to stop the government conspiracy that is happening. This movie is absolutely fantastic, and while certainly over the top for 1998, especially with the majority of its action, it's still so amazingly on point in terms of how ahead of the curve it was with the way it's possible for agencies like the NSA or the CIA to watch you if they so chose. And... That's what makes this movie so powerful. Um, some of the plot points have not aged very well. I want to say I watched this movie, I think about two years ago, and it hasn't, I want to say that the, some of the plot points themselves haven't aged very well. But seeing really cool tech, and again, we're only 15 years away from war games at this time, and to see just the amount of sheer unbelievable jumps in technology that we'd had just in 15 years and this is from 1983 to 1998 forget where we are now 21 years ahead of that and for them to be able to use the satellites and zoom in and all of the miniature pinhole cameras and all of the tracking devices and all that kind of stuff is ridiculous so just look at it for all the fun stuff that you sit there and go hey wow my, you know, when we, we hold our cell phones today and then we kind of jokingly go, okay, hey, NSA, take, you know, we didn't mean that. But with this film, you might rethink those jokes. And I, I just love it. It's a fun, it's a fun film despite, despite some of its flaws. But I mean, man, is it ahead of its time. Uh, and also, this one was a pretty big hit as well at, uh, so, like, for example, War Games 
did, I want to say, like $72 million on a $12 million budget. And Enemy of the State here did $250 million on a $90 budget. I'm sorry, $90. $90 $90 went a long way back in 1998. <laughs> it sure did. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's great. It's just one of those really cool movies that was good back then and I think overall has aged amazingly, despite, like I said, some of the late 90s plot points. What about you, Tim? What do you got for us there? Unless you would like to talk about Enemy of the State, which please feel free if you do. Oh, I love the knockoff of Enemy of the State, Enema of the State. Uh, that, that's ah, a, that's, a, that's a good little porn parody there. My next three squared pick is the Steven Spielberg film from nineteen whoa from two thousand and two, Minority Report. Apparently, there was actually a uh, there was a, a TV series from two thousand and fifteen that ran on Fox for one season and. Boy, did we forget about that one. According to Wikipedia here, Minority Report is a 2012 American neo-noir cyberpunk action thriller film directed by Steven Spielberg and loosely based on the short story The Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. It is set primarily in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia in the year 2054, where pre-crime, a specialized police department apprehends criminals based on foreknowledge provided by three psychics called precogs. The cast includes Tom Cruise as the head of the crime division tasked in capturing these criminals who uh, who are supposed to be committing these crimes, I guess, or, you know. But yeah, the film has Tom Cruise in it, Colin Farrell, uh, and Samantha Morton plays one of the mutant precogs. This is a fun little movie. Uh, actually, my third film is uh, based on another Philip K. Dick story. And there's just something creepy about Philip K. Dick's stories, including his short stories, because they predicted a lot, very much like George Orwell's 1984 predicted a lot about video surveillance. And if the government was able to find criminals before they could actually commit a crime i believe they would use that to their advantage you know as much as they could despite that the film was in its way a technical marvel when it came out back in 2002 uh the special effects are great uh it, they're actually still pretty good i just recently rewatched this a couple of weeks ago and i thoroughly enjoyed it i thought this movie held up incredibly well uh especially since i watched uh, the philip k uh, the adaption of uh, Philip K. Dick's I, Robot, not too long after. I believe both of these are on HBO Now, or whatever it's called. I mean, hell, it's Steven Spielberg. So mainly, uh, actually mostly anything that Steven Spielberg has touched has aged over the years incredibly well. And this one definitely has. It creeped me out when I first watched it. Really, as does anything that is adapted from a Philip K. Dick story. Matt... Please move on. Nobody wants to hear me talk. <laughs> well, finally for me. From 2005, we have got uh, James McTeague's V for Vendetta. Now, this is uh, produced and a screenplay from the graphic novel by the Wachowskis. But this was directed by James McTeague. And it is a dystopian political thriller film. And this is, of course... The one starring Natalie Portman, Hugo Weaving, Stephen Ray, and John Hurt. Now, the thing is, what makes this movie so great is not 
necessarily the oh what's the I, I guess I'm trying to express it the right way what makes the movie so great is not necessarily the the way that the story itself plays out because while I enjoy it for what it is there are definite flaws and they do try to kind of turn turn this thriller this dystopian thriller a little bit on its ear into random mutant superhero stuff so again the movie does kind of go off the rails a bit i enjoy that aspect for what it is but what i really like is how it demonstrates the possibility for one person to change the world and it does it in a backdrop where you individually may not be watched closely but enough people and enough trends are followed that you may as well be and it creates the culture of fear that causes people to immediately like rat each other out to immediately go to the government um, instead of searching for solutions amongst themselves and i don't mean i'm not talking general political stuff i mean literally like anything that is remotely wrong in the world you don't try and solve it. You immediately turn to the government. And you do it in such a way that you are using the government. You think you're using the government as a tool to go to your enemies when, in fact, you're just turning over your soul to the government. And that's what they use as they as the government controls the people um, until ultimately the people feel like they need to be able to stand up, but they don't know how. And that's where the guy Fox Max, uh, Max, <laughs> I can't talk either, Tim, don't worry, where the guy Fox Masks come in. So that's what, that, that's kind of the cool thing about this movie. And I just really like seeing how certain aspects of the government are portrayed. And again, it's over the top and dystopian and everything like that. But it's also, as much as it is a pessimistic view in that regard, it does balance that out with the ability for one person to change the world, so to speak. And I really like that in this film. Um, again, there are some definitely kind of um, weird twists and turns that the movie makes, but overall it's presented in such a fun way that you kind of can't help but like it, especially the revenge part of this story. I hope I'm at least making it sound like it's something you may want to watch if you haven't already. Um, v for Vendetta from 2005 completes my three. Tim, bring us home on the three squared. I love V for Vendetta. That's going to be a, a, a real fun one to watch and, and talk about uh, if we ever make it to cover it on Did It Age Well. A wonderful film. Love it. I'm glad you were able to talk about it. My final pick is a Richard Linkletter film adapted from the Philip K. Dick story, A Scanner Darkly, which was released back in 2006. According to Wikipedia again, A Scanner Darkly is a 2006 American adult animated science fiction thriller film based on the novel of the same name by Philip K. Dick. The film tells the story of identity and deception in a near-future dystopia constantly under intrusive high-tech police surveillance in the midst of a drug 
addiction epidemic. The film was shot digitally and then animated using interpolated rotoscope, an animation technique in which animators trace over the original footage frame by frame for use in live action and animated films, giving the finished result a distinctive animated look. This movie is a cool movie. Not only is the story cool, but the animation is fantastic. Because the movie does pertain to a dystopian future as well as like drugs, they're able to play with some of the trippier aspects of hallucinations where suddenly you see like a roach crawling around, but it's not just like a gross, grimy roach. The roach has some character to it. And Keanu Reeves is in this film, as as well as uh, Winona Ryder, Woody Harrelson, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. is like a tweaker in a way, as well as Woody Harrelson is basically a stone Woody Harrelson. On top of their delightfully bizarre performances, that animation just really kicks the film into high gear, and their characters into high gear. Keanu Reeves' character is tasked to watch after his group of friends and he's trying to figure out who is pushing this brand i don't think it's a brand new drug but this popular drug and as he is trying to figure this all out uh, he is beginning to lose sight of his own identity and begins questioning things whether a is it all worth it b could this in some way be a conspiracy uh this is a wonderful film shot in Austin, Texas, so it has a, a very Texas-y vibe and feel to it, which is distinctly different than other dystopian futuristic films, and I highly recommend it, really. Um, it's a shocking film, especially the ending, which is not a happy ending at all. Uh, Matt, have you seen A Scanner Darkly? I have not. Ooh. And I will say, I, it was a movie that I always intended to see, mainly because I like that animation style was so new and fresh and interesting. And they actually did some commercials with that, <clears throat> not for a Scanner Darkly, obviously, but they used that animation style in this, uh, in 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 the different kinds of commercials and stuff. So I mean, it was definitely kind of something that touched on. Uh, different animation style, different special effects style that was kind of new and exciting and didn't really go anywhere. Um, mainly because I think CGI was just kind of taking over the world by then. And there were, this was one of those last gasps of air quotes kind of traditional animation that was doing something with cell shading in a different way for film. But yeah, I, I mean, I would definitely be willing to check it out for sure. And to be fair, though, uh, this was actually done back in 2001 by Richard Linkletter, but this was done in a much more, in a much more, I guess, like professional manner. More time was taken and the end product was, I believe, significantly better, despite, I believe, Waking Life, which is the 2001 film that still did the same thing, was probably uh, more personal and more character driven. But yeah, those are my three films, a scanner darkly minority report. And my first was Brazil. Very cool. All right. So next week we're going to go and do some news for you. That's going to be our bonus segment next week, but thanks for listening to this wonderful three squared. And, uh, we'd love to know what you think of it. So send us an email to the show at slscast.com or, Hit us up on the interwebs and the Twitters all over at SLS Cat, the SLS Cast. So, 
Without further ado, we are going to do our second bonus segment for fun here that we've done. And that is... Was It Worthy? So this time, we kind of took the Was It Worthy idea and twisted it on its head a little bit. Um, which I think will make it a little bit more fun for us to be able to use this bonus segment later on. So instead of just looking at specifically awards, whether or not good or bad or otherwise, a movie may may or may not deserve an award, we can look at whether or not it deserves some notoriety. And Tim had a really good point here with this one. We have the movie shortcut to happiness now it's basically a film version of the devil and um daniel webster basically and it was originally shot in early 2001 and at the time alec baldwin was the director and the producer now over over the years and after production or i guess after filming had wrapped Apparently, everything went sideways, and at one point, due to a fraudulent investor of some kind, and not necessarily an investor in the film, but one of the investors tied to the film was apparently doing fraudulent activity elsewhere, the FBI apparently seized the movie. So, it never really went anywhere until uh, the Bob Yari and the Yari group, uh, the Yari film group, picked up the film out of whatever auction jail it was in, and then they finished it, put it together, and released it around 2007. Um, in the interim, Alec Baldwin came, basically came and said, um, take me off, I don't want to be on this film anymore, because... I didn't get to finish the film. We finished shooting the film, but I didn't get to go into the back end and help with the editing and really kind of finish the vision. So he asked to be removed as the director and the producer. And even John Cornick, back in 2003, talking to EW, Entertainment Weekly, he even said, quote, We spent a lot of time and effort shooting the movie. It's not the movie that we intended to make, end quotes there. So this is definitely something that's been very vocal uh, from the people originally behind the scenes. And yet the movie was dropped and it was dropped into the, the consciousness of the world, the shortcut to happiness. And so what we're looking at is whether or not it is worthy of Alec Baldwin saying take my name off as director. Should he, you know, was he justified? Was it worthy of him saying, hey, remove my name? And with that, I guess maybe we should we should kind of give him an idea of what it's about. What do you think, Tim? I think that'd be a good idea because shortcut to happiness tells you nothing. <laughs> Whereas the devil and Daniel Webster actually would in some way. At least you know the devil is involved, but not right. a kinky devil. A very kinky devil. All right, so here you go, folks. Shortcut to happiness. On the New York literary scene, it's publish or perish. And Jabez Stone is dying a little every day. I don't even have enough money to buy dog food. We got a 201, desperate writer wielding unpublished manuscript. Mr. Webster, it's a pleasure to meet you. My name is Jabez Stone, and I am a writer. What do you want? All right, sir, why don't you come with me? Please. 
That's my book in there. I'd like you to read it. I think I have something important to say. Two minutes. I sent you a manuscript. Do you have any idea how many submissions I receive in a year, Mr. Stone? I have something out of the ordinary. They're 214 pages. Go home and write something better. Look at yourself. You'd sell your soul. Until... Can I help you? Question is, can I help you? A devilish stranger appears. More than anything else on Earth, what do you want? Success! I want success! That's it! Yes! Ten years, it's standard contract, ten years, and then I take what's mine. Well, what happens after that? Look at it this way. How much worse can it get? Are you in? I'm in. But now... Mr. Stone, so good to see you. Are you famous? Jay Bestone, so nice to meet you. What about the book? I've already ordered a first printing of 100,000 copies. <laughs> good God. We've just got time for a quick celebration. They told me we're on this Sunday's bestseller list. And the winner? Jay Bestone. Mr. Stone, man of the hour. Taking a shortcut to happiness can be hell. You know what they say, in order for one to succeed, another must fail. That man stole my book! I never asked you to sabotage him. So, for a big helping of success, you signed over your immortal soul. I didn't know its true value. I need more time. That's ridiculous. I'm constantly feeding this machine of success. I lost myself. There is a way, Mr. Stone. Opening statements, Mr. Webster. Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins. Jabez Stone was had. Jennifer Love Hewitt. And this is the man whose soul is supposed to be worth saving? Alec Baldwin. She's right, I'm not worth saving. Dan Aykroyd. Overruled! And Kim Cattrall. You've got heat right now, Bez. Let's not waste it. Do we have a verdict? It's good to have someone around to remind us there's never a shortcut to happiness. All right. So now you've got the backstory there. Um... And what we have here is uh, Jabez Stone, played by Alec Baldwin, Bezzy Bez, is a down-on-his-luck writer who has just the worst day imaginable, capped by killing an old lady with a typewriter, when in walks the devil, wearing Prada, no less. Just kidding, not really. But it is Jennifer Love Hewitt coming in. And she offers him uh, a 10-year deal. What do you want? I'll make everything go away and make your life better. Well, the clearly desperate uh, Jabez says, I want success. And then, voila, um, they consummate the deal. And I did say consummate the deal. And the movie plays on as it would go out. Um, Shenanigans ensue, yada, yada, yada. So here's here's where I'm at. Now, this movie literally, I mean, for its time, you got to remember 2001, not even 2007, but 2001. This movie starred Alec Baldwin, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Anthony Hopkins, Dan Aykroyd, Kim Cattrall, Jason Patrick, a very early Amy Poehler, uh, Daryl Hammond, John Savage, Frank Severo, Barry Miller, and Mike Doyle. So you've got some, even who we would consider today to be uh, decent to heavy hitters, um, and really were big hitters uh, during the time that this uh, movie was filmed. So you would think it would come together and work. And there's a reason why I believe that people say, like, for example, big pop culture one, most people will tell you Star Wars was saved in the edit. And I think there is some truth to that, because you... There is a reason why a a director 
even a very hands-on director works with an editor. Okay, they don't just walk away and say, okay, well, thanks, that's a wrap. I'll see you at the red carpet. No, I mean, there's a ton of stuff they're also doing once the filming is complete. However, you've got to have a solid vision for what you're going in to shoot. And that's the devil in the details that I think makes it not worthy of Baldwin walking away from the director's credit. There is so much in this film that I'm willing to, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on editing, certain shot choices of the way that they were done, certain stilted framework that's meant to kind of draw particular attention to a scene in the way that were clearly not necessarily shot that way, but you could argue were definitely done in post-production. But the way the story, the way the scenes themselves are portrayed on the film, and I mean, it's, it's almost as if, it's almost as if someone sat down and said, you know that terrible, terrible, crappy first season of Sex in the City? What we should do is combine that with the Brendan Fraser bedazzled movie but try and make it look a little more pretentious and go. And Alec Baldwin says, yeah, I want to direct that because that's what this movie came together as. And that's not solely on the editing. There is like, I am impressed with Alec Baldwin's ability to cry on cue. I think that's an amazing talent for an actor to have. The problem is you do it once, I buy it. You do it twice, it's kind of like, it's getting a little sappy in here, folks. And it's not just crying. It's like looking at the camera and having that ball of tear just like sit there and yeah, roll down yeah, that, half that of his cheek eye. and sit there. Yes. Yeah. And and then you do it, but you do it three or more times and it's like, come on, man. Do you not do you not understand how craptastic it makes your scenes work? Um I mean, it's just at that point, you're losing all credibility on the screen. And that is not on the editor. That is not on the post-production. That is on the director. That is the way the scene was shot, not the way it was put together. And you can't put that on anybody else. So um, maybe it wouldn't have been so glaring. Maybe it wouldn't have been as bad had Baldwin been able to do it after the rap. But the fact that the scenes exist to the extent that they needed to be in place for the movie to get made tells me that that was directing. So take your lumps and move on. It's okay. You don't have to knock it out of the park on your first go. You know, use it as a learning experience and move on. But this is definitely, um, this, this is definitely so much of this movie still rests on his on his laurels and I just don't think he had it then I, I that's not to say he's not better now that's not to say he hasn't grown as a performer as someone who could work behind the scenes as a producer or a director again but for this movie I'm sorry I don't think it was worthy of him sitting there going no 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 take my name off it I think he just um, used the opportunity for everything that went wrong later to take advantage of that so that he has something else to blame it on. And 
that's where I stand. I don't know. Tim, I'm sorry. I'm kind of running all over the place. What do you got? No, it's fine. I I don't think the movie was an awful, horrible train wreck because there are still little glimpses of hope. And I think it would have been a better movie if Alec Baldwin did oversee the whole post-production process. Exhibit A, that really shitty opening credit sequence. Matt, I know that was probably your favorite part of the film. At least your favorite, most professional part of the film. Wait, it wasn't your favorite, most professional part of the film? How they just reversed the sprite of Jennifer Love Hewitt so that the slit on the dress kept turning sides? What? That's not good? Is that not good animation? Yeah, the opening titles are definitely, I think, worth seeing. (laughs) If nothing else, for the really cheap-looking... And when when I say cheap-looking, I mean cheap-looking CGI. You know, like in Microsoft Word, you had that paperclip, buddy, that would just pop up every once in a while? Clippy! Yeah, Clippy? Clippy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Think of animation like that. But Clippy had more personality to it. But there was a Jennifer Love Hewitt Clippy, you know, animation, and with really cheesy music that I have a feeling was just really bad canned music that they didn't really feel... They didn't go back to change. Because it doesn't really match... Some of the more, like, orchestrational whimsy, you know, that happens throughout the movie itself. The opening belongs to, like, a Russian-made children's movie that maybe Amazon Prime cheaply picked up and Americanized it. It has a sexy, clippy version of Jennifer Love Hewitt. I mean, basically, what Jennifer Love Hewitt looks like in that animation is the equivalent to the porn that Clippy would watch back in the early 2000s. On another note, that was probably the crappiest opening titles that any of those actors had <laughs> in their in their movie careers. I mean, it's just wasn't it just so embarrassing seeing like Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin's name come up a couple times? Sure. I I totally agree. Look, but then again, I'm not holding the opening credits against Alec Baldwin. I am, however, holding that opening narr- narration against him. Uh, that opening narration was just, I mean, and he did that. So, y- are you talking about Anthony Hopkins doing his best no. recreation of the Grinch? No, 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 not, not, not the, not, not the uh, Anthony Hopkins part. That was just for me. That was just Anthony Hopkins being Anthony Hopkins. I'm talking about when they jump in and uh, Bezzy is sitting there uh, going through the story of the kid with the bike, hooking it up to the balloons. Oh yes, the story within the story. Right when he's writing his novel, he's been up all night writing his novel right before he gets the phone call from Dan Aykroyd. Um, that that I mean that is some pretty. It just, like, I get that it's trying to scream author in his element on a roll. I get that that's what it's trying to do. But it just, it comes off as so much more than that. It, it, it Like, it's trying so hard to be impressive and relevant. And I don't know. There's, I mean, like when AV Club wrote about, I mean, it's like, it's Alec Baldwin using his voice as they say, as they say, quote, a voice like aged scotch, right? <laughs> um, Jermaine Luc- uh, Lucier, 
That I, I that that's a that's a quote uh, from Jermaine uh, Uzier of I'm sorry, no wrong name, Nathan Rabin. There we go. Um, that's a, the voice like aged Scotch. He's just trying so hard to be pretentious, and it doesn't come across as the endearing kind of pretentious of someone that you want to root for. It just kind of comes off as pretentious. It's that stuff. It's that kind of stuff um, that I am holding against it, not the opening credits, which are truly laughably bad. I would definitely say if you need two minutes of what the hell am I watching, that that's that's good. And Jabez, is that a real name? Have you ever met a poor sod named Jabez? I'm not gonna lie. Until I saw the first cover of the the, the cover of the first book, you know, loss of feeling or whatever, feeling of loss, whichever one, because whichever one was not the Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's book, um, I literally thought it was like J dot, right? Like it was an initial, like you know, James Bez Stone or whatever, you know, or John Bez Stone, something like that. Um, I, I, I did not realize it was Jabez, like J-A-B-E-Z. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, I mean, yeah, or, I thought. Or is it, or is it Bezar? <laughs> <laughs> so just for the reason that Baldwin was not a, or what was his credited name in the movie? Oh, Harry Kirkpatrick. Because Harry Kirkpatrick, Jabez Baldwin Kirkpatrick, wasn't able to uh, oversee the post-production, I do think it was worthy for him to remove his name from uh, the film. I mean, because it's not his final product. I mean, this movie was watchable, I thought, because there, I mean, Anthony Hopkins, it was just, just interesting to see that a movie like this exists. I wasn't ever really bored with it. I was interested in it, but by no means is it a good movie. And if maybe Alec Baldwin was able to oversee things and more than likely he'd be able to go back and maybe reshoot a couple things and do some pickup shots, uh, he would, I guarantee you, would eliminate all of the random like slow motion reaction shots that litter this movie. Like there's so much random slow motion that... It just does it has it has no place in this film. You know, I'm pretty sure he would go back and or he would remove all that stuff. It wouldn't even be in his cut of the film. And I'm sure some of the music cues wouldn't be as goofy. I'm sure certain shots wouldn't linger too long. There'd be alternate edits. And I think there's a good possibility that this movie might have been a little bit shorter and a little bit tighter, and therefore even a little bit better to where maybe it would have been good. I think Alec Baldwin has good timing and I think he would have brought that on to this film, you know, timing, comedic timing, especially. Um, now would that have masked more of his crying? I, I don't know, but, uh, still this movie would not have been great, but I still think it would have been different. And again, that is why I think it is worthy of Alec Baldwin to remove his uh, name from the film. All right. Well, then that settles that in terms of it not being settled at all, because I felt it was not worthy and he felt and Tim felt it was worthy. But what do you think? Uh, hopefully you got a chance to watch that film. Uh, it is free for streaming on Vudu, if you don't mind putting up with 
really weird, not relevant commercials to you. Which aren't really that bad. I think all the commercials were like 15 seconds. Mine were 18 and 30 seconds. And I always got three of them in a row. So it was like 18, 18, 30. But I think there was only like... I think it only happened like four times. So whatever. You know, you had about five minutes of commercials in a hour and 42 minute movie. Yeah, whatever. It was free. <laughs> you get what you pay for. <laughs> uh, but if you want to check it out, you can certainly do that uh, as well. And hopefully you can let us know again. Send us a note to the show at SLScast.com or hit us up on Twitter at the SLScast. And so next week, we are going to go and do a couple movies. We've got Blinded by the Light, and we've got Ready or Not. So be sure to check those out and tune in next week to let us know what you think. And so without further ado, I believe it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Okay, say cut me some slack. Chomp the one to help. Chomp the one to help. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners, crew Rise of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Rise of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NetTwit12345. And, of course, come aboard that information superhighway track on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Jennifer Love Hewitt, I get to say this. I'm a hopeless romantic. I love love. My middle name is Love. Valentine's Day is my favorite holiday. I want to have a family and children. I am a sucker for every romantic comedy that comes out. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going... Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.